Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Before we jump into this week's conversation, I wanted to extend a warm welcome to Cincinnati Public Radio. WVXU 91.7 FM in Cincinnati, where Cultivating Place goes live this Saturday, August 14th at 7 a.m. You can hear Cultivating Place on Cincinnati Public Radio every Saturday from now on, 7 a.m. Welcome, and I cannot wait to get growing with all the gardeners in this great listening area. Many gardeners will remember with delight reading Gaia's Garden by author and activist Toby Hemingway, originally published in 2001. Toby passed in Sebastopol, California in 2016, but not before he lit a spark and passed a metaphoric mantle to today's guest, Matthew Trum. Matthew went on to learn about regenerative home gardening and soil science under Dr. Elaine Ingham, among other mentors, and also from the wisdom of the land itself, initially near rural Berry Creek, California, before the campfire of 2018, and for the past several years as well on an urban lot in Oroville, California. I was introduced to Matthew by our producer, Matt Fiddler, who mentioned over Zoom one day in lockdown, you have to see this guy's backyard, it is amazing. And so today, Matt and I take you on an actual field trip to the energetic, permaculture, regenerative urban agriculture, food forestry, and indigenous land stewardship-informed backyard paradise that Matthew Trum tends and grows with. He is a teacher, a designer, an activist, and a gardener with a capital G. We began our October 2020 conversation and tour in person in Matthew's house to get a little background. So I grew up in the East Bay Area. Uh, in Concord, you know, pretty typical suburban life there, I would say. Um, didn't really have a lot of connection with plants when I was young, even though my dad did have a garden uh, in the backyard, but I really never paid much attention to it when I was younger. Um, I actually was into music a lot when I was growing up, so I I was a DJ, hip-hop DJ, um, and uh Ended up touring with like a bunch of big named artists uh, f- from well the underground hip hop scene and stuff, and I I rap and stuff like that. So I ended up before I moved out here, uh, I was managing ten bands and doing tours and stuff, doing that kind of stuff, and um, and that was my life, and never thought about anything along this line uh, of of gardening or anything. So. So we had property in Berry Creek ever since I was five um, years old. And so um, we used to go up there like on the summers and, you know, uh, every month or so we'd go up and spend some time up there. Um, it was for when we first got there, it was just like camping. We didn't have a, a, a home or anything up there. And then we, we got a mobile home uh, up there and we called it the cabin, you know, and it, and we decorated it like a cabin, you know, it was always the cabin yeah. uh, to us. And. Um, and anyway, so that's 
where I have a connection to land and to nature, I guess, was through that. But and I was in the Boy Scouts and, you know, that sort of thing when I was growing up. But I never thought about it like I do now. You know, I moved out to Oroville first and then I moved to Chico for a couple years. And then uh, my folks were actually living in Berry Creek. They moved from the Bay Area up there. Um, and they To lived the cabin. To the cabin. Mm-hmm. And um, it's off grid um, on 12 acres and had a little solar system. And, you know, have to pump your own water into a water tower and gravity feed it. And all that sort of stuff. Um, and they were getting a little too old for that. You know, they were like, well, we want to get a, a place in town. So they moved into Orville and they were worried about the property and they were thinking about selling it and everything. And uh, I said, would you be interested in, you know, being up there for a while? And I said, hmm, never really thought about that. But uh, yeah, I'll try that. Okay, so what year was this, and about how old were you at this moment of moving to so the cabin? It's been 12 years ago. So, yeah, I was 26, uh, moved up, and I was at the time sort of more of in the prepper mindset, right? Like, I was like, gonna go up there and, you know, cut my piece out into the land and, you know, be self sufficient, like bury some food, in, you know, in the, in, in the side of the hill and um, that sort of thing. But that led to, you know, being self-sufficient is like, okay, you got to learn how to grow your own food. So it started in a really basic way. And, um, I did everything really traditionally, although I was always organic. Um, I started to grow food and failed miserably the first year, maybe two. Um, and, uh, I had a good friend who was always really connected to plants and stuff growing up, uh, my buddy Zach. And he, was, you know, giving me some advice here and there. And then he gave me this book called One Straw Revolution, um, Matsubana of Fukioa, if if I say that right or wrong, (laughs) sorry. And uh, that was sort of my window into this natural gardening method and and the whole world uh, that I've I've stumbled upon. Um, And uh, it was like concepts like, you know, finding a place that has green grass all year round and like throwing vegetable seeds there, you know, and just kind of letting it go and seeing what happens. And I tried that and uh, forgot about it. And I came back a couple months later and there was, you know, knee high kale and charred plants, you know. And this was, was at, at the cabin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. And then, then it was like kind of like he called it the do nothing farming or like the lazy man's farming. But it's really not. It's more about being smart. Yeah. Reading the landscape. Yeah. Knowing. Working yeah. smart, not hard. And um, and so I just started to experiment with different things. Like, what if I don't do this? And what if I, you know, and do this at the right time? And so I started to see my yields go up. I started to see my work go down that sort of thing. Um, and then I stumbled upon uh, the term food forests. Um, and that intrigued me. And I started to research that and was like, whoa, this is really cool. And, uh, and the, just the concept of like creating a forest with food. And then I heard the word permaculture and that led me down this road, which it was sort of like the, you know, in my mind, it was like the Holy grail that I've been waiting for my whole life to find. Yeah. That's great. So you are how long on the property in Berry Creek before you make the move back into Oroville? Yeah, so I lived up there for seven years. Okay. And uh, the only reason I moved in town, sort of begrudgingly, you know, sort of like didn't want to leave up there, um, but my daughter um, 
and and me and her mother are not together and so and then she moved further away um to paradise actually mm -hmm. and so it was a little far and i wanted to be closer and I, I was dating someone also at the time that was living in sacramento and so it was like just being closer to her and my daughter um and this house um came up on you know i was you know looking around my folks needed to um actually buy a property um, because we sold a, our house that I grew up in in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. so they didn't get their tax, big tax yep. thing. So it was like a, a deal. They're like, well, would you manage, you know, a property for us if we were to buy a rental? And then that's what kind of triggered my thought about the whole thing. Yep. It was like if I uh, maintained it or whatever that, you know, and, and worked on it, that I could buy it from them over time and stuff. And so that's that's where it all started. And then um, I came here and saw this property which when I was when I got here it was a blank pallet you know it was nothing here and um you know of course my permaculture wheels started turning right and, right you know I uh, had just met Toby Hemingway um before that like a couple months before that mm -hmm. and um he did a talk on his new book permaculture cities mm -hmm. and I I saw him in Sacramento at Soilborn Farms and uh and I you know, had been going through this off-grid thing, which he was doing when he wrote Gaia's Garden. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I had been thinking about potentially moving to town because of my daughter. And when I heard him talk, and I, I actually got to sit with him afterwards and talk to him for a while. And, and, you know, just seeing the energy order, you know, seeing the benefits of being into town and how much you can connect uh, elements, you know, and, and there's so many more resources being in town, actually, it's, it's a it's, you think living off the grid and being self-sufficient, you know, but at the same time, you're spending money driving into town to get materials, you're, you know, you, which wears tires out, which means energy, you got to spend time, money, etc. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, roads that you have to maintain, you know, and bring in gravel every year. And, you, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And I actually did the math at, at one point and said, I was spending about, you know, $800 a month just even though the the property was paid for and I didn't have any bills on that level like I was spending a similar amount that I would be if I was living in town in the end from everything else maintenance wear and tear all this stuff so um, that got my wheels spinning and then Toby passed away um about a month after I met him wow and I got a call from Soilborn Farms to take over his uh, position at, he was teaching PDCs, uh, permaculture design courses at the time. And it was like this crazy thing. Like I never saw myself as, you know, as like on the level of Toby, but apparently that I was the closest thing they could find locally to him to teach a permaculture design course. And it was like this just really weird moment of like, seeing myself in a new place and then the words that he spoke to me and like my connection to him. And it was like, huh, something telling me that I should be doing this, you know, and then this house came up, you know, and, and that whole situation came up and it was like, wow. Okay. The universe gave you a very clear sign. Yeah. Yeah. So just for the sake of, um, being on the same page and having listeners with us on that page, Give us a definition, gloss for us the term permaculture and the idea of food forests and, and how the two interplay for you. Sure. 
I, I could do this 150 different ways. <laughs> the best um, definition, I guess, off the top of my head would be it's a design system that's fundamental. It's not a technique like double-dig gardening or intensive right. gardening or any of these things. It's, it's a design system um, that basically takes all the available knowledge of the world and helps organize it into a way that mimics nature. Um, we're looking at nature as the ultimate teacher and the guide, um, the patterns of the universe, that these constants that are there, you know, um, people say the only constant is change, but, you know, it's, there is constants uh, in the universe. And so it's looking at patterns of nature and then how do we go with those energies to, um, to best organize um, land, you know, and elements that we bring into that land, elements that already exist on that land to be the most productive. So benefiting ourselves while also benefiting the environment at the same time. It's, it's a very, it's a step up from the environmentalism or, um, you know, uh, these other things in the past where it says that, you know, humans are sort of like this negative thing that we need to step away from nature and, and let nature be. It's actually saying that humans can be the most beneficial element on this planet. And by doing the right thing, we can exponentially benefit everything else around us. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, that's really fundamental. And it's an energy order. It's defining sustainable. It's, it's a um, system that produces more then it consumes and it, re it replicates itself. So it's regenerative. Mm -hmm. It continues on after you set it up right. It will continue on without you and it will replicate itself and its components um, and its parts. And so, you know, that's a really big one because people sometimes don't understand, you know, we're not just looking at the production. We're looking at the amount of energy going into uh, to get the production. So sometimes you would say out of a, a food forest, you only get 10% of the production of than a, than a commercial system. That's not even true, but you actually get a pretty good production. Um, but you're also using a hundredth of the energy to produce that food. So you can do the math. Let's go look at your garden and um, your permaculture landscape. What do you call it? Um, yeah, food forest. Your food forest. Yeah. This is Cultivating Place. Matthew Trum is a garden designer and educator trained in permaculture, regenerative ag, soil science, food forestry, and ecology. We'll come back to our field trip to his richly productive urban growing grounds right after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you, and by support from the American Horticultural Society, of which I have been a member most of my adult life. The AHS is about to turn 100, but let me assure you, it's quality horticultural information integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy in this gardening world through its programs, reciprocal admissions at public gardens, and its journal, The American Gardener, 
has never been more relevant. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. So for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. I'm right there growing with you. Hey, it's Jennifer. As I sit and write and garden and live generally, the sixth largest fire in California's recorded history is burning to the north and east of my place. Many acres burned, more homes, a historic town, and As I sit and write and garden and live generally, the word and concept of regenerative sits with me, especially after this conversation with Matthew. Regenerative ag, regenerative ecology, regenerative gardening, regenerative action and mindset. Matthew Trum and the many, many other regenerative mindset folks over years and space have, with loving observation and experimentation, shortened the cycle of creating soil, of regenerating systems on backyard, but also landscape scales. And they are object lessons for us each trying such ourselves. to our field trip and conversation with Matthew Trum, gardener, designer, and educator based in Oroville, California. As we come back to our field trip, producer Matt Fiddler and I have headed outside to see Matthew's two-thirds of an acre. He begins by telling us about the many stacking functions that the garden serves for his own household economy and advocacy pathways. As we walk, we hear the dog drinking, trains passing, airplanes overhead, and birds and bees at work. So yeah, we got here, it was a complete blank palette. Um, there was basically just weeds up to, you know, my ankles uh, in the backyard. And um, yeah, I guess that's, that's really all you need to know. I mean, really, it's just when you How see the pictures, it's really stunning. Yeah. How big is the site? Uh, it's a, th- a third acre, the whole property. The whole property, yeah. a third of an acre. And the house was built in what year? Uh, 94, I think. Okay. Um, you'll see a, a big um, industrial building out, out there. Um, and so this used to be a parking lot for that industrial building. Okay. Um, at, at this yard, part of this yard, and then the rest of it was actually part of a, an orchard, but that it was super compact, even though it's sandy. It was super compact, um, and I guess the other thing to mention is that, um, the, you know, the high street, the reason it's called high street, because it was the river's edge at one point. When the, when the river was natural before the levees, this was the higher bank of the river, so that, you know, this was like the dry area that you knew was dry. So we're right on the edge of the original riverbed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you say um, that among the yields of the property are uh, 
two businesses, if not more. What is your primary business at this point, Matthew? I don't have a primary business. Um, you know, I, I teach here. I do my yearly permaculture design course, um, sometimes twice, um, and then workshops, um, and then I do consultation um, to people and, um, you know, going on the properties and, and doing a permaculture design uh, walk with them and then a rough uh, design of, of their site. Um, and then I also have a, a box program. Uh, we call it Co-op Box. It's a co-op CSA box program with a bunch of local uh, regenerative farmers in the area here. Um, and we do that every Friday. And then I'm also a teacher at this a local school. I set up a permaculture uh, program there, um, and I teach that. And then here in Orville. Yeah, here in Orville. What level of school? What are we are we talking uh, about? K that? through eight. Okay. Is what I teach. Is a K through twelve school, but I teach K through eight okay. uh, different programs. We have a garden club and then garden classes uh, from the K through five. That's great. Yeah, and then I also have a nursery here. I sell plants, um, and then I also started the Campfire Restoration Project um, and the first ecosystem restoration camp in the U.S., um, and other things, too. But that's, right. that's, that's the bulk of it. <laughs> I ask him, as we look at the yard full of green lushness from the ground to the canopy, how he began approaching the design and layout so we're looking at all the, the energies and potential energies on the site. Like also like where can we put a tank to catch water from the roof? You know, all these sorts of things. And then we're saying, do we want to harness that energy or do we want to block that energy? So that's, a, that's sort of like our, our stepping stone. And then we look at, so we're looking at that. Those are things that like are the constants, right. That I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also looking at the, the owners um, or the, the property, the people that dwell on the properties, abilities, um, so their physical abilities, their financial abilities, um, and then we're basically using that as our guide as we, as we design. The first thing I do is I look at earthworks. What are some things we can do to shape the land or um, create hardscapes um, like ponds, um, you know, tanks, um, other things that really you don't want to change later. You want to do that in the beginning, um, especially if it's a blank palette. A lot of times we're dealing with things that already exist, so you know we have to go with those flows. Um, we don't want to necessarily change too much um, because we don't want to necessarily put in a ton of energy. We got everything today. All right, uh, was water access structures are the three big ones um, in that order. So water, um, we have plenty of sun in California. <laughs> so water is, a, is our biggest uh, thing we don't want to play with. Uh, we need a lot of water. Access, uh, we want to make sure that wherever we're working, we have access to it. Again, something you don't want to change later. And then structures, um, you know, what kind of structures are going to um, need to go in uh, for the function of the property, what already exists, and how do we work with those. Uh, and then we go into a zone map, right? So we're looking at energy flows of, um, of zones based. So zone one is sort of your, um, your areas right outside your, your dwelling. Um, and if, if, let's say if it's not a home site, like for me, the school, it's then where you pull up your vehicle to. 
you know, that's your zone one. So these are the things that need the most care, mm-hmm. um, that require the most amount of energy. And there's things that are valuable. So you want to keep your eyes on them. You want, so we want to concentrate as much of those things in a, in a small, in, in an area right near, you know, right outside the front door, right outside the back door, that sort of thing. Zone two, it just goes outward, little less, um, requires a little bit less care, um, sort of maintains itself a little bit easier, um, less time needs to be spent there. But anyways, as you go, as you go out to the further zones, it's less, um, less use, less uh, need for maintenance until you get all the way out to zone five, which is the wild space. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would argue nowadays, even that space needs a little bit of help. (laughs) Um, but mostly it's just for learning. Um, you go into the, to the forest to, to learn, uh, from the greatest teacher. Um, and then from that, we, uh, we create our design and that's, um, and usually I try to show people like what's the most, you know, benefit you could do for land, for production and all these things. And then we can scale it back to however, you know, they want. And we usually come up with like a plan, step A, step B, you know, that sort of thing. So. Okay. So walk us around, uh, you know, we've come out of the house. We are, let me see if I can get this right. We are facing east, southeast. Yeah. And we, uh, it looks like a jungle. <laughs> There's, we see canopy, we see understory, we see some raised beds, we see some bermed plantings of what I can quickly identify as some flomus, some fruit trees, an akebia vine on an arbor, and um, a lot of little gnomes. Mm-hmm. And so, so, and, and we're under what is clearly a, an, an added arbor. Um, walk us through like how you began to work with the site and the elements you added in as you added them that are then illustrating what you just told us mm-hmm. about your process, Matthew. Yeah. So we're in a Mediterranean temperate, uh, climate here. Um, and we, which means it gets really hot in the summertime and really, it gets pretty cold in the wintertime. Uh, we're not in a cool temperate or cold temperate, which are a little bit more extreme on the cold side of things. Um, so we can maybe get away with avocados. I'm, I'm still figuring that out. (laughs) Um, you know, we can, uh, maybe get away with bananas. We'll see. Uh, I actually am pretty cool. I have a, a bit of a, a cold pocket here, so um, I'm still protecting those plants. Maybe until they get older, we'll see. Um, so sun is our biggest enemy, really, um, in these systems. Um, where a lot of people get it wrong in in these areas in California and Mediterranean areas is that you read your plant labels, you buy, and it says full sun. Yeah. Uh, and. <laughs> And that is not really ever true. Um, and Nobody wants full California sun, yeah, right? Yeah, no plants Very want that. Very rare. So a lot of it, uh, a lot of my first design elements were bringing in shade um, and sort of creating these little um, spaces of shade throughout the garden that will help me <laughs> also get shade as well as my plants. Um, so, uh, the, well, the fence was actually the first thing I did okay. um, just to, you know, help my neighbors and myself out <laughs> to relieve, alleviate a little stress. Um, so I did everybody a favor by putting in that fence and, um, 
it also was, you know, people I know because I've done permaculture for so long, people are like, what the heck is this guy doing in here, you know? And I knew I was going to be making a lot of compost and things like that. So I just didn't want to alarm anyone (laughs) with what I was doing uh, as well. So I I put the fence up. I I pulled back the, um, the, the border of the fence about 12 feet so that the PG&E uh, access was on the other side, uh, double wide, uh, 12 foot gate. So I could bring in a truck in the backyard, bring in materials. So other than, uh, that I, then I started working on this pergola that were underneath, um, to bring in shade to my house and to my hangout area here a little bit and to a place to sort of nurse up, uh, some plant stock as well, have it really close to the house where I come out, like I was saying on the zones. And then I started composting like crazy. Um, I started knocking on all the restaurants doors, uh, in town and I started collecting, uh, food scraps from all the restaurants, um, and coffee grounds and even hair from hair salons and, uh, a little bit of everything I could, um, organic matter. And I was just composting. Um, I, yeah. So when you say you were composting at that point with all of that, like bulk input, mm-hmm. were you, um, building piles? Were you digging it in? Were you berming it up? How were you using all of that? So the reason I focused on that first was, you know, in any system, um, the main things you want to bring in are, um, our soil life. You know, yeah. you want to, you want to heal the, the soil first and build the soil. Um, and I knew that was going to be an issue, especially cause I'm, we're in sandy soil here. So all the nutrients leak out, um, when you water, um, and so organic matter, um, and you know, the microbes inorganic matter is going to be your best, um, ally. And so I wanted to bring in a lot of things that would sponge the nutrient and the moisture. Um, so yeah, I, I'm making thermal compost piles. I was trained by Dr. Elaine Ingham. Uh, I worked for her in Berry Creek. Um, okay. she got a property that was five minutes down the road for me and I was her first hire, uh, for a research center up there. And, uh, and I was trained through her composting techniques, thermal composting, um, her particular ways of doing it. Um, so I'm making these, you know, four by four minimum, uh, square foot, you know, piles. Um, and, uh, and then you're assembling all these elements together, high, high nitrogens, carbon materials, um, and moderate nitrogens, and you're putting them together all at one time, getting the right moisture level. And then they get up to 135 to 160 degrees within a couple of days. And you turn them every so many days. And, um, in about a 18 to, tw- you know, 24 days, you got a finished product. Okay. Keep going. Yeah, so at this point, yeah, I've got the pergola, I've got the fence, um, I'm building soil, I'm, I'm creating these compost piles, um, and then I rented an excavator, a mini excavator, to come in to start to shape the land a little bit, and we'll walk over here to kind of illustrate that a little bit. Sorry, it is a little messy back here, I didn't have really a lot of time. I'm not uh, worried. Anyways, so um, this corner of my property is the highest point and we have about it's hard to even tell but there's about a three four foot drop to the back side of the property so that corner over there so northeast corner is the top yeah. corner. okay mm-hmm. and so um that's where our water starts so yep. we want to slow it as much as possible um i i have catchment off the roof uh in these areas um this one's not connected right now but i have this this tank here yep. um ibc tank 
and when those overflow, then there's, it's hard to even tell right now, but there's this little tiny channel. So I barely graded, you know, this so that there's this low point right here. And so it flows this way. And then when this tank overflows, it flows into the same spot. And then it slowly passively um, follows this little edge, um, sort of just passively irrigating the, these plants and trees in here. Um, and then it comes all the way down. And then it drops into this, uh, I, I, it's not a swale, just so people know. Um, I have these small berms, um, but what I've actually created is something that nobody's created before really, or has a name for, uh, which is often happens in permaculture. Uh, I call it a hugel pathway. Okay. Um, so it's a hugel, it's like a hugel bed, but instead of in this climate, you don't want to mound your hugel um, you actually want to bury your hugel underground because especially for me because i'm in um, sandy uh, soil here um, if i was in clay like i might not have it mulched but uh, what i did with the excavator is i dug about two feet deep um, and then i mounded and spread and i actually took some of that soil away because i didn't want it mounded too much um, again, since it's almost like a desert in the summertime, mm -hmm. the more that you expose the soil, mound it, it actually evaporates more. Right. So um, then what I did is I, I did like a lasagna layering of different materials. Um, and then I, so it's like, it was whatever green material I had at the time, food waste, whatever, and then wood chips. So I've got about two feet uh, of wood chips now in these pathways. <clears throat> so when it rains, um, it then slowly sponges that moisture and holds it for a longer period of time. Um, so when we actually do have a heavy rain flow, um, this fills up both from the channel that I showed you, but also from the um, cement um, over here, it goes in and it uh, then it spills out of there. And before organic matter is my biggest uh, thing nowadays, I have so much coming down. Uh, but there's actually was like a spillway that went around like this and dropped into this one. Okay. Um, but I have to dig it out every year so now. They act like they act like retention ponds, or mm -hmm. um, and then of course the you're planting in the raised sect berms between these <clears throat> hugel depression channel pathways right and therefore the root systems of these bigger trees we're seeing in this raised you know the raised sec berm next to these pa pathways then have can go really deeply and pull that water and and source it up to some of the less deeply rooted plants yeah in fact um I, I really have to get some people to do some research on this because um, I've never seen uh, roots act like they have on these trees or the amount of growth that I've seen uh, these trees. Like nobody has seen the amount of growth that I've been able to produce here on these trees. Most of these trees are, are two years old um, or, or in some are less even. Um, like some of the uh, mulberries. So all the mulberries you see all came from seed. Uh, from from this original mulberry uh, these two massive mulberries when I got here there was these two massive mulberries that are on the neighbors on the neighbor's mm -hmm. side leaning over that are fruiting mulberries um, and then I also have uh, a pecan tree that comes over the fence I've got a uh, persimmon that comes over the fence I've got a palmello and a, and I have a, a jujube 
and a um, uh, two pecans that all are like were there coming from the neighbor's yards before okay. I got here. And so you had n not even one existing tree on this lot. No, okay, nothing yeah. was okay. here. Um, and so, but yeah, what we're seeing is uh, this exponential root growth. And, and if you go into these pathways, I can dig in a little bit if you like, um, just to see what we're looking at. Um, but this... Oh, yeah. Look at the sponge that you just stepped on. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this... See, you can almost not dig in it anymore. Like, I, I, last time you were here, Matt, like, we dug down a little bit. But I'm, like, worried to, like, destroy roots now. Um, but this soil that I create... I'll just do it. Whatever. One, one spot. Um, this soil that I created here, you know, I built basically two feet of topsoil um, in you know, less than four years. And so, you know, nature takes 500 to a thousand years to build one inch of topsoil. So I've estimated I've, I've built about 24,000 years worth of soil um, in four years. That's what I mean by humans can be exponentially beneficial to the planet. We can build 24,000 years of soil in less than four years. This is Cultivating Place. Matthew Trum is a gardener, a designer, a thinker, living a life germinated from a regenerative, urban, agricultural, permacultural, food forest, and environmentally interdependent mindset. In this way, he is a lesson for us all in our own gardens. We'll be back to our fertile field trip to his growing grounds and classroom laboratory after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Thinking more on this idea of self-sustaining feedback loops and cycles. They are called cycles for a reason. They ebb and they flow. They expand and they contract, right? They are not consistent, this and that. They are the dynamic process of balancing. The aphids burgeon and flourish to the point of overwhelming the garden sometimes. And then the predators come in and snack to their heart's content. As a mere human with a relatively short lifespan in the scheme of things, I see a so-called problem, or more accurately, I finally begin to grasp a problem in my little pea brain, like the climate crisis born of more than a century of industrialized and consumer life out of balance, centuries of systemic racism compounded daily, an economic model that relies on inequity. And I really want to fix it. I want a silver bullet, one answer fits all problems of all sizes, and bam, we're back on the right track. But then I look again. However weary I might be in my own limited perception, my own delusions of control, and my own tendency towards adult versions of childhood temper tantrums and moaning, but it's not fair. I want to wail. And when I look again, I am reminded that meteoric resets notwithstanding, that quick fix is just not how things tend to happen on this generous, ever-turning planet. They are far more likely to be long-game actions, long-game results. One plant at a time, growing, flowering, setting seed, 
and then dying and laying down its one individual body and one season's seed set onto the receiving body of the planet. That one plant, now resting, waits patiently while water, cold, winter, water, warmth, and sun, and dark of night and water, accompanied by the many blessed decomposers. May we be daily grateful for every one of them, from vultures to microbes, do their time-sensitive, slow work until that one plant, many days or months later, is now organic matter folded into that receiving body of earth once more. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Over and over, one plant's composting at a time and its offering of the next generation of seed. One fire at a time and its offering of the next season's flush of ash-fed growth restarting the slow forest succession cycle. One failure at a time and its offering of lessons learned. One success at a time and its offering of other lessons learned. One more daily attempt at gardening our lives with all such intention at a time. Compounded. We're back now to our conversation with Matthew Trum, regenerative urban food forester, permaculturalist, and ecologist in Oroville, California. As we come back, we finish up the tour of his amazing food forest and outdoor classroom. I do water um, newly planted perennials for the first year, year and a half, but after that, it's all pretty much on its own, especially now that we're in canopy. Um, we all we have canopy completely touching. I mean, this is the first year where I'm gonna actually chop back, you know, and bring in some more light. So I've I've actually tilted from shade, 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 trying to bring in more shade to to help everything grow. To now I can finally like lean back on the other side. I've had my original plantings that were all exposed here, uh, like this um, purple sage uh, that now are gone because the systems evolved to the point where now it's shade-loving plants, so I'm actually replacing a lot of my Mediterranean plants that I put in originally with shade-loving plants. Um, now that's an evolution you want yes, that to is happen. Natural succession in yeah. a, a landscape um, as big things grow and establish and, and shade out other things. Now, so that brings me to a question that I had when we were joking about the full sun in California and how very few things actually really want full sun in California. But, of course, desert plants and plants that have co-evolved with this region and being exposed to full sun really want that full sun. And without it, they don't thrive like our native salvias and sages. Um, Do you intentionally incorporate native plants of this region as um, either food for you or food for the the habitat of wildlife? Where do native plants fit into this planning for you? Sure. So the way I look at that is it, it all depends on your space, right? So 
Um, so I'm, I have a, a limited space here. And what I've done is I've, I've put uh, native plants in the areas where, um, where it is, it's two, two, well, two parts, I guess, because there's some, there's some native plants that actually don't do well until they get a canopy. Right. Um, and it's because, and this is a big misconception, a lot of people, um, because most of our native plants and trees actually were, were um, germinated under canopy at one point, right? And so we've degraded that system so much where there's no canopy anymore. So actually by using some of these uh, non-native pioneer species, I've actually been able to bring back natives on their own. So, you know, like I always tell people, like you really don't need to plant a forest or, you know, native species. They're already there actually. But what you need to do, what we are, are lacking because of the degraded systems, uh, we're lacking the, the fertility or the proper um, elements to, to bring those in. So by creating that, those conditions, you know, I let my foresters come in here, the blue jays, the, the squirrels, and they bring in the trees. And since I've created a canopy with, with the fastest growing trees that I can get, which are in this case, I just use what was here, mulberries, um, also, um, you know, whatever, uh, poplars, almonds, um, whatever I can get, um, and, and, you know, some other nitrogen fixing things like silk trees or, you know, whatever, um, then I started to see these oak trees started to pop up underneath. Um, other native plants started to come up. Um, and that was a big one for me, like realizing that. But the other part of it is, is that by providing the most production for myself, people need to realize that they're also taking away the demand from the agricultural system. So by taking away from the demand of the agriculture system, we're, we are restoring ecosystems somewhere else as well. So it's a, it's a way of thinking about it. It's a very different way of thinking about it. And because we're in an urban space that has already been fully degraded in a lot of ways, um, it's like, well, let's utilize it to the best possible abilities because the urban spaces are actually the areas that can be the most productive and they're right where we're at. And again, we're taking away from that, that big, that big system out there. Yeah. What is this? Uh, uh, that is uh, ashwagandha. Yeah, got ashwagandha here on the edge, some aloe, um, chard, um, and uh, and what I've allowed to really take over as my main under, you know, ground cover in this yard is is sedge, yep. and uh, and also Bermuda grass, yep. which is an interesting story that. Uh, is... Which I would love you to tell. <laughs> because Bermuda grass would be um, an interesting one to make friends with. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I guess I can explain this. So, so yeah, at one point, um, so there was the chicken coop here mm-hmm. um, on the one-third and then the greenhouse. And um, so it was this great interaction with the compost, the chickens, you know, come out, get my eggs and all that. Um, and then in the wintertime, you know, I cover it up with the plastic. Um, I had a little, um, a little gutter that would collect the rainwater and then feed up feed the chickens with the rain water you know they get their water Mm -hmm. um, and then the overflow would go into this little basin so I created this little sort of swale it's the same thing it's a hugel pathway and so the excess water goes and feeds that Um, I also could muck out the chicken coop and throw it out to the garden there and anyways and they also had a little trap door 
um, that went underneath the greenhouse tables as well. So I could let them out underneath the greenhouse tables to knock down the pre pest pressures and things like that. Um, it also helped warm, their bodies helped warm the greenhouse in the wintertime, greenhouse helped warm them, uh -huh. um, all that sort of stuff. The other, the other part of the design here is that we're underneath a mulberry. Um, and so in the spring, when I take off the plastic, uh, the mulberries just fall and the chickens would have extra protein and um, food from the mulberries. Um, so there's like all these different, and they get shade uh, in the summertime from the mulberry, right? So there's all those things happening. Yeah. What is this one? Is that a persimmon? Uh, this guy, oh, that's mulberry. Oh, okay. So I planted mulberries like every, yeah, every other, like pretty much every other fruit tree or every open gap, I plant a mulberry. And then, um, and now this year I'm going to be finally like starting to chop them back and, you know, shape them and stuff. And some of them I might get rid of completely uh, in the next couple years. So, um, this is a new, this is a new space. Um, I created this last year. Um, so I put in this pergola. Um, it's sort of like, again, you know, like connecting shade, you know, my goal was that everywhere I travel in the yard, I would have shade pathway. So I created these little, um, arbors like going through different areas. I want to make sure I got trees on the edges and stuff when I'm traveling. So I'm just always getting a shade break, you know, cause it gets intense, you know, 115 degrees sometimes down here. It's super hot. Um, and so, yeah, I brought this in. I wanted to create a, a grass area because I have a lot of, you know, people come, come over and stuff like that. Um, I just give it a, it was really thick. It was like up to here cause I was so busy just recently um and uh we have chiote growing on here as well as uh bitter melon um as sort of like just coming up um on these poles but for this year um i put shade cloth um but i'm my plan is to um i'm gonna have two sets of cables going across um a tall cable which on the very top will be um grapes and then understory of uh, kiwi uh, like another layer of kiwi that will be on the edges, on the outer edges, and then underneath that will be um, uh, purple passion fruit, which I have, um, and I just planted. But yeah, for now. Where did I yeah, see well, a fruit? I have, the, I have the passion fruits here, but I have, I have uh, little koi and purple possum passion fruit. Purple possum is my favorite. They're a little harder to grow, but they're really good. <laughs> Um, so, but anyways, this is now my new like outdoor classroom space. Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of set it up where I figured out once this is not going to be here because it gives you a little bit more space, but, um, I could probably fit about 25 people in two sets of semicircles right here and, and a speaker up here. Nice. Yeah. That's my plan. Um, and then we're going to, we did annuals the first year, but we're going to switch into more of a perennial, um, covers in these areas. Um, you know, like probably some kind of barrier or something like that. Uh, our grapes are starting to take off already um, up these poles. And um, yeah, just sort of experimenting, see what works, uh, what we can play with, with the shade and sun differences. But yeah, this is something I'm working on and I'm layering. As you can see, I just take any um, organic material basically. Um, and then I will go to the restaurants um, and maybe gather for a week. And I'll just throw that out here um, as well. And actually, on the back row there, um, you see there's a whole bunch of fruit trees that have popped up. Yep. Um, that was for me doing a chop and drop into there, like for just building organic matter. And then I realized 
oh man, they're all growing new trees. So I gotta, once they go dormant, I'm gonna dig up a whole bunch of trees. There's probably about 30 fruit trees back there that have and popped up. And they just up. rooted from the cuttings. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's this like dramatic change in the way we think about everything. And, and I let the system, you know, move me now. It's like, oh, I guess I'm doing this now, you know? And it's all production and it's all, you know, it's just not imposing our idea of what we want on the land. You know, it's letting the land really express itself and following that design and then helping that, that energy along you know, just improving upon it a little bit. We can't create anything, but we can help orchestrate a more creative process, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's it's a lifetime of, you know, possibilities and, and yeah, just good times, you know. it's it, Once you go with it, it's like you'll never go back, you know. You start to see the benefits of following along that line, like the Bermuda grass, um, you know, for instance, and... It was my indicator that, um, you know, I'm going to fight an annual system for forever when I'm sitting on a riparian woodland, right? The expression of the land is a riparian woodland. And however much that I want to impose an uh, annual situation on it, it's always going to be pushing towards that. And since I've already brought up, you know, a lot of those beneficial elements like it just was screaming at me you know one day I'm like my teacher said if you get angry um if you're doing anything and it makes you angry you have to analyze why that is and what are you missing you know how can you make that problem into a solution and as soon as I embraced the Bermuda grass and allowed it to be the ground cover it doesn't bother perennials at all and the, and the sedge which is more of a it's, it's been here a lot longer than the Bermuda, and it's a better expression. Um, it actually uh, takes the place of the Bermuda grass. And sedge is edible. It's got an edible tuber on it, too. So <laughs> it's like, again, you just you have to stop and, and open your mind up for a minute, and all of a sudden, all this abundance starts to come, and, you know, and it's easier, much easier <laughs> to do it. And in all these areas, you see, it's already phasing out because of the, the shade and everything like that. And this is the first year I won't have to mulch because I have so much organic matter coming down from the leaves and everything. I'm not gonna have to bring any mulch in. You know, most of these areas already covered up all the, the sedge and it's out succeeded it. And it turns into fungal corridors. That's, I looked at the pattern of the rhizomes and I realized what is this when it's layered into the system. It's a fungal corridor, it's an earthworm corridor, it's a root corridor, like it has the same branching patterns and everything. So you have to expand your view, view and your time, you know, your idea of time and what we want. And you have to see like, oh, how do I expand that to a four, five, 10 year mindset and all the different successions that come along the way. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. And thank you for, for sharing so generously with us and with other people. And um, it's exciting to see your relationship with this piece of, piece of land. Awesome. I'm super happy to share. Matthew Trum is a gardener, designer, educator, and thinker living a life germinated from a regenerative, urban agricultural, permaculture, food forest, and environmentally interdependent mindset. 
Matthew has learned from some of the best in this work, including Toby Hemingway, author of Gaia's Garden, and from soil food web scientist Dr. Elaine Ingham, as well as having learned from the wisdom of the land itself. Initially from rural land near Berry Creek, California, before the campfire of 2018, and for the last several years on a rewilded and food forest urban lot we toured today in Oroville, California. Listen in next week when we remain focused on the regenerative home garden landscape, specifically taking on the ubiquitous turf lawn in the most life-affirming of ways. Gardener Owen Wormser, author of Lawns into Meadows, joins us from Western Massachusetts to share his evangelism, helping people to grow beautifully beyond their lawn. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society. To read more and see many images of our field trip to Matthew's remarkable food forest, head over to cultivatingplace.com, where every week's show notes are under the podcast tab there. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode, but also so that you can share your favorite Cultivating Place conversations with others you know will love them. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.